Shelly, let's tell everyone about our new giveaway. Yes, if you are ready to learn your Enneagram type and what to do with it, we have a giveaway just for you. We're offering a free Enneagram typing package to a lucky someone who gives us a review on iTunes or Spotify. These typing packages are valued at $375 and include an interview, a proprietary test, and one follow-up coaching session. So you heard it here. If you go to iTunes or Spotify and search for the Big Self Podcast and leave us a review, you can enter into a giveaway to get a free Enneagram typing package. After you leave us a review, go to bigselfschool.com slash Enneagram giveaway and fill out our form so you can be entered to win. And one more time, that's bigselfschool.com slash Enneagram giveaway. Okay, we are rocking and rolling, uh, moving along in our Enneagram panel series, and I am super excited to introduce you all today to my brother and sisters of the Enneagram Type 2. Um, these are my people, and so I'm, I'm looking at y'all's beautiful faces. I'm, I've been looking forward to this conversation, I think, since I first emailed you three. Um, and you come from very different sectors and different places in the world. So we're just going to kick it off with you all introducing yourselves, um, telling us a little bit about you and your work right now, what you're doing, and also how you figured out you were a type two. Um, and Carolyn, you are at the top of my screen. So we'll just start with you. All right. Carolyn Suara. I, uh, I'm an entrepreneur. I have my own business and I am a workplace culture architect. And that means I do lots of culture and leadership work with small to medium sized businesses. Um, how I found the Enneagram. Um, it was through a group of consultants. Actually, we were doing a, just like a, like a skills workshop just to kind of better ourselves. And someone in our group, her mother was like an early pioneer in this work. And so she introduced us to it and I, I was hooked. I went out and bought a bunch of books and then I took, um, that's, that's where I discovered I was a two. And then that was validated through IEQ nine when I did a formal, a formal test and I'll just stop there. Well, did you, you know, some people kind of have to meander around the Enneagram a little bit to find their type. Um, I lived for a while in type three um, Carolyn, as I think you may remember my process. <laughs> so did you like immediately know, or did you have to spend some time um, in other lands? The way we were introduced to it was really high level. And because of that, I really identified with the four at first. And I think it was because I now, I now realize I feel big and I feel like fast. And so that whole description about fours being so in touch with their emotions um, really connected. But then once I saw more detailed descriptions and started reading about it, I was like, oh, two, like I'm a two, I'm poster child for two. Awesome. Thank you. Ashton, how about you? You're as I slide over my screen. Yeah. So my name's Ashton Whitmore Ober. I'm Enneagram Ashton on Instagram. 
And so I'm an Enneagram educator, consultant. I also work with businesses, uh, mainly focusing on their structure and organization as um, the Enneagram can help with that. Um, also an author and a professor. I kind of wear a lot of different hats. Um, I was introduced to the Enneagram in my grad pro in my grad school program. Um, I have my master's degree in community psychology, and it was just one of many tools that was uh, explained to us and taught to us at ways that we can better understand ourselves and the people around us. So I also um, identified with the two pretty quickly. I've always been a helper type of person. I've always uh, worked in the helping field, um, social worker by trade, and it kind of just naturally fit. But I also hang out in the three a lot. So um, that was hard for me at first to really grasp the difference between behaviors and motivations and that I can look a lot like a three to everybody in the world, but having those main motivations lie with the two. I love that you said that. I um, People are often surprised when I tell them I'm a two because I look like a three. Um, you know, I carry my little full focus planner around. I've got my list. I've got my goals. Um, so, yeah, it was a little hard at the beginning, but I think you're exactly right. And we can talk about that. The motivations underneath right. those behaviors. Um, as I started learning about myself more and more, it was crystal clear, like, what was the the, the compulsion to want people to like me and really love me, Um Ultimately. So, yeah, I think that's a good distinction. Jonathan, Jonathan and I go way back. We went to college together. And so um, he, well, I'll let you introduce yourself, but I was, um, when I heard your sermon, gosh, I don't know when you did that, um, it had me in tears. And I was like, okay, he needs, if I can get you on this podcast, I wanted Mm. you. So take it away. I'm really honored by that. Well, thanks. My name is Jonathan Bow, and uh, I am the lead pastor of uh, Cross Point Church in Cary, North Carolina, which is in the Raleigh-Durham area. And yes, I think that is my biggest claim to fame is that I went to uh, school with Shelly. Oh, so uh, I'd put that on my resume. <laughs> and uh, so there's the Shelley prize. Ruled- I'm like, hey, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Shelly ruled our college. So, I mean, she was she was the person and the leader even then. So, um, and yeah, I think for me, the first time I was introduced to the Enneagram was, I think about, uh, about a decade ago, I went on a small retreat with a priest and author named Richard Rohr and, uh, Richard Rohr introduced me to the idea. And so just started reading a lot more and trying, and it was pretty obvious to me early on that I was a two, which, Come to find out there doesn't seem to be a lot of men that are twos. That's not as, uh, but for me, it was just very, it was very glaring. I was wrestling with it for a while and then eventually asked my therapist, you know, I was like, I'm struggling a little bit. Like, I feel like this is where I'm at. And he's like, no, I would bet my salary you're a two. Like you're, it's, it's someone who listened to all the motivations and someone who listened to the inner world of me on a regular basis. And so once he kind of confirmed that for me, I didn't. I didn't really go back. So yeah, and so you've been using it for about a decade. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, well, let's dive into this. I want to talk about um, something that I think is pretty complicated to people, which is like the center of intelligence. And so, as a two, we are all heart types. 
uh, we are not predominantly, you know, I, I mean, again, it's debatable, but head type, we don't live in body type, gut type. And so um, explaining this to people has been really challenging for me lately. Like, you know, because if you're a heart type, you don't really have a reference point to anything else. And so it's really hard, I think, to um, to wrap our heads around what is our center of intelligence is. So I'm curious kind of if you all could share um, what it means to you to be a heart type. Like, how does that show up for you? Um, what does it feel like? Uh, as as we all know, we're driven by emotions and feelings. And Carolyn, you said, you know, big feelings. And I, I'm just really interested in, in how you could share what that's like for you and talk about it with uh, the audience. And anybody can go. We'll just kind of kind of do a free-for-all conversation. I'll start because literally, like, you even just saying that, like, makes me nauseous. Because I think, like, feelings are so deep and strong that it's like, I don't understand how other people can't function that way, you know? Um, and so for me, it's like feelings are my, are my first reaction. I'm going to feel about things first before I really process what's going on or before I, you know, just do something. I'm going to see what it is that's making me feel that way and really try to identify those feelings. Um, yeah. I mean, feelings, I feel like, and emotions are just everything to me. Like even if I don't feel right about a situation, like, you know, like I try to trust my heart more than anything else, which can look like wearing my heart on my sleeve a lot of times too. Um, and so like, it's, it's my, a great trait and it's also a very difficult trait to have. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I think it does. It has, um, such power, but I think because we can resonate so much with people that can sometimes, um, be problematic. I mean, for me personally too. What about Carolyn, Jonathan, what do y'all think? I didn't understand that other people didn't feel this way um, at all. And, and somebody described this to me, actually my Enneagram mentor, she's like, it's kind of like you have this little sensor and you can walk into any place um, and get a sense. So like, I feel first for sure. Um, and, and I mean, I think back to even as a child, this memory of watching E.T., I just aged myself, yes. But I remember watching E.T. and being, oh, it's like so overcome with emotion. And this lady beside me who I didn't know, I thought was making fun of me. But she was like, because I was really upset when E.T. had to go home and left, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was crying, like feeling it. And I'll never forget her. I felt like I was shamed for putting all my emotions out there. Um, but that's just, yeah, like I feel big and I feel hard and I feel fast. Like, Yeah. Yeah. So I think that I want to point that out because I like that you said that fast. So information's coming at us a lot through our emotions and quickly. So, and I think it's not something that we have to like orient to, it's just happening. And I think it's kind of coming whether we want it to or not. Ashton, I think to your point, <laughs> we don't always want to be feeling all this. Yeah. So I would how about you I, as a heart type? Yeah. I would say for me, um, you know, partly growing up in highly competitive sports and being a guy, there was a lot of pressure not to show emotion a lot. And so 
it doesn't flush itself. I think I've grown into that more as I've gotten older and just embraced that side of it. But for me, it's always showed up more just in the commitment to relationships and that, that being the driving motivating factor. So I remember 20 years ago before I was in a leadership seat, um, I always felt like someone who is a, the CEO of the organization, a leader organization, everyone was always scrambling for their time and trying to figure out how do I get a word in with them. And so when I got into a leadership seat, then it was the very first thing I did was I said, okay, I'm going to schedule one-on-one times with all my senior staff every other week for an hour. Like, and we're going to spend time getting to know one another. Let me just ask you about your heart and your life and your partner and your kids and what's going on in your world, because that relational connection time was so important to me so much so then, then it was, Oh, okay. Well, as a staff, we're going to prioritize once a week, just spending time with one another to check in with, each other and breaking out into groups so that you can just, you know, listen to each other's lives. And so I felt like that was just the natural thing to do as a leader. Like that just made sense to me. But as I've yeah gotten older, it's like, oh no, that's more of my two-ness that has come out of mm-hmm. going, oh, we're going to prioritize relationships and knowing one another and caring for one another um, more so than it just being how a typical leader or a CEO of an organization would tend to act because other people look at me like I've got two heads going on when I I talk about that stuff. So, yeah. And I think for me, Jonathan, it shows up a lot relationally too, especially like with my family Um, and, you know, learned about the two, like we're, we're kind of strategic about who we let into our heart. Um, And I certainly feel that way. I, I also have big emotions but I think part of the strategy of a lot of twos is we repress that. And so I'm having all these like firecracker emotions going on inside, but I never, and I'm a, I was a therapist and I'm a coach. Like I never stopped to really label them and understand them um, because they were, they were so big and it was like, Oh, I'm going to cry or, Oh, I'm going to mm-hmm. pop off in anger. or I'm going to like it's just so much there. So I really have been more conscious about how that heart type, I think, shows up in relationships for me, especially mm-hmm. with my kids, my husband, close friends, the people that I'm really, um, that I want to relate with and help. And so I think what you're saying connects with um, with what I'm thinking also. Mm-hmm. Shelly, one of the things you said there, um, it took me a bit of time to understand that um, because I wasn't somebody who could label my emotions. I didn't, I I just knew I felt them, but I couldn't label them. I would repress them. And the word love scared that, I I don't know if we're allowed to say a swear. Yes, you are. It scared, it scared the shit out of me to the point where until I had kids, I couldn't use that word without feeling like, uh, like a, a real weirdo. So I think it's important for listeners to understand wherever they're on in their journey, you don't have to be like so comfortable with love and heart and all these touchy like things that people might be woo woo. This process in my work with the Enneagram has allowed me to kind of like unlock my heart, but it's been a lot of work to learn how to label those emotions and not repress them. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so we're, let's talk a little bit about some of the definable characteristics um, of a two. And I've, I'm really trying to do this thoughtfully with every type because I think we can get into stereotype land. And I don't want to do that because, um, you know, people may not look what a typical two would look like. So I'm trying to be careful. I'd love y'all's opinions on this. Um, 
but I kind of found these across the board. Twos tend to be warm and friendly. Like we have that kind of affable demeanor about us, which can sometimes come across as seductive. Um, and this, that one word always kind of um, hung me up a little bit. So we can talk about that. Uh, our focus of attention is on other people. So we're that other referencing type. Uh, we strategically help people in order to create indispensability. So we're strategic helpers um, in order to get some need met. And then when we become indispensable to somebody, uh, there's something that that like love factor really gets uh, met for us. Uh, we repress our own needs and feelings. We're highly attuned, emotionally sensitive, um, and our core motivation is gaining approval and love from important others. So I just said a lot. Um, curious, like what jumped out at you? Or you're like, yes. And then what maybe would you not agree with as much? And I'm also curious how this shows up in your work, how this these kind of defining characteristics show up. I want to say one little caveat because Jonathan, you said the whole college thing. In college, I was called a blonde bombshell. <laughs> Me and my best friend Carmen were the blonde bombshells. And like, all, you know, like, oh, you're so flirty. You're so, I'm like, I'm friendly. I, you know, and I had no idea about the Enneagram too at that point. But I think this like friendly, charming, seductive, very unconscious thing was coming out even in college that was even picked up on, you know, when I was 18 or whatever. So now I have language and I can look back and see like, oh, that's what was happening. I wanted everybody to like me. So that was my like coping strategy that I was using. So how has this shown up for you all and in specifically in your work too? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to, to jump in. I mean, I think a lot of those resonate, um, with me as much as sometimes I don't like to admit that they do, Mm -hmm. especially like the strategically helping others to create indispensability. That's been a big, um, having to wake up to that. Um, but probably the best example I can give, uh, especially from the challenge and how it showed up for me in leadership was, and I mentioned this just to give you context of that weight that it felt, but, you know, back in 2015, we had maybe 2,500 people who would show up to church on a Sunday morning. So a pretty large church, but I had remained very publicly ambiguous when it came to the full affirmation and inclusion and celebration of the LBGT community at our church. And so, and I, and I knew that was going to be the main issue in our context that blew things up. And so um, and at the time I had 30 staff, I had their salaries, I had church mortgage payment. I've got this large community of people who I knew believed differently. And so publicly, I just sat on the fence and didn't want to talk about it. Because again, the idea of blowing up those relationships, the idea of fracturing a community that I loved and cared about so deeply just felt crushing. And I felt responsible for you know, Mm -hmm. that indispensability, I felt responsible for everyone's salary for everyone's like all of those things, rather than paying attention to my own heart, it was I've got to hold all this together. And so but then, you know, one day I had a friend who reminded me that, uh, you know, that whenever you're ambiguous on an issue on an issue of justice, that only serves to help the oppressive voice and never helps the marginalized voice. And so 
that really helped move me to, okay, you know what, we're just going to lean into this and publicly affirming and uh, including and celebrating. And the thing as a two is that it, I have zero regrets about it, but it blew up the world. And, uh, and there was so much relational fallout with people that I loved and it was crushing. And so when you go from being trusted and admired and beloved to being called dangerous and getting death threats by the same people, like it, that sent me into a world of a lot, needing a lot more therapy to try to understand how do I live as a two more healthily? Because my two-ness was, I've got to hold this all together and I'm responsible for everyone's feelings, you know, thousands of people's feelings and how they think about an issue. Um, I'm responsible for all of that. And so that for me was learning how to, in a much more healthy way, not take that responsibility on that. That's not up to me to be responsible for people's feelings, but that, that was a big challenge for me still is. And I love that it was through relationship that you got to that core like real core belief of, of right, rightness. Um, cause I, d- I do think I'm, this is one of my growing edges. Like I still crave and need mirroring and people a lot. Like it's not, it's, it's difficult for me to kind of go in myself and make those decisions. Uh, and I don't know that that's a bad thing. I think that's maybe how we're all wired, but it was through relationship that you were able to go in and find your truth. I love that. What about Carolyn or Ashton? How do you all experience these these kind of definable characteristics? Um, how does your two-ness show up? Go ahead, Ashton. The one that really stuck with me when you were naming them was um, needing to be indispensable and wanting to want really, you know, what that means to me is like wanting other people to need you and to be able to call on you and rely on you for things. And I think that, um, has shown up in a lot of different areas of my life. But when, you know, you asked about, about work and, and what I do on my platform, um, is show up. And I think that I show up because I know people need me to show up you know? And so I think that it kind of is a driving force for why I do the things that I do, because I know that other people need that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I don't particularly love that. You know, I don't love that. I think that way. Um, I don't love that. I'm like, Oh, I'm, I need to be indispensable, you know, but it's something that I think just naturally is, something that pops into my head pretty frequently for you. The, the needing me comes with liking me or loving me. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's, for that's sure. it for me. I feel like when people need me, I'm like, Oh, I can't do yeah. anymore. <laughs> but yeah. the, the byproduct of that mm-hmm. is what I really want. Yeah. Which is, I yeah. think the indispensability and the, you know, yeah. I really like you. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, that's, I've definitely grown in a lot of areas when you have a very public platform, it's like, you know, there are bound to be people who kind of like you were saying, Jonathan, like go against what you believe or go against what you have to say. And you kind of have to adjust 
And I think that the work of the Enneagram has been huge in not needing people to like me, but it's always there. It doesn't matter how much we grow through that. It's something that is always present. Yeah. Carolyn, how about you? How does this stuff show up for you? Yeah. The two words that struck, uh, stood out for me were strategic and seductive. Um, I worked in big pharma for 17 years and, you know, I, I did, I did well, I didn't have a business background, but I worked in like, you know, three or four different areas of the business. And, and it's because I could build relationships fast and, and I consider like that was strategic and it was seductive. So I didn't not build relationships with people. Like I didn't prior, like I didn't think, um, oh, well, you're not good enough to have a relationship with. That wasn't at all. I mean, I wanted to have relationships with, with like, not that type of relationship necessarily, but like uh, um, a need, I think kind of coming back to what you were saying, Ashton, is if they could see me as being indispensable, you know, there was a connection there. And strategically, that could benefit me in some sort of way. And yeah, not proud of it, but um, there was always like at the back of my head, how might I use this in the future? How could this help me? Um, But I didn't not build relationships, if that makes sense, if people weren't good enough. Like it wasn't that sort of thing, but it was definitely a a seductive thing. And I also really like um, Beatrice said in one of our training sessions that um, she really associated with the, the notion of there isn't anybody I can't make like me. (laughs) And I was like, oh, bingo. Like, it's a game. It becomes a competition. Like, I can get the most difficult person to like me. And I married him, actually. Um, (laughs) You won. Yeah. (laughs) So... Yeah. yeah, it's funny. I kind of had the same experience with my husband. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I'm married to a sexual four who yeah. has been told. I've been told is like perhaps the the most the, you know potentially the angriest of all the the enneagram mm-hmm. types. So yeah. I'm like, my God, I'm going to make you like me, <laughs> and he did. Um, okay, so I want to talk for a minute about because we're kind of uh, meandering around this idea of liking me, loving me. So we have this whole adaptive strategy that came from childhood, of course, like all of our personalities do, um, that we have to do something to be loved, that it's unearned uh, or that it's earned. It's never unearned. There's some, um, you know, kind of core fear that we're not really lovable. Um, And so we have to kind of go into helping mode, doing mode. Um, for me, a lot of times my whole life, it's kind of, I always say, I feel like I've something on my forehead that says, please tell me all your problems. And it's, it's been so a through line, every single thing since I was a child. And so there's always been this like, Oh, okay. That's how I get you to like me. I'll listen to all your problems. I'll help you figure this out. Um, and so obviously carrying that into adulthood, you know, Allah, here I am. So how have you all, what are you aware of? Um, and you've each kind of alluded to it, but I'd like you to go into it maybe just a step deeper and even kind of connecting it as much as you feel comfortable back to those kind of childhood messages, what you picked up on um, that is something this that you continue to carry with you in this um and again, it doesn't necessarily have to be your leadership or your vocation, but as you're kind of moving and walking through the world, how do you see this 
um, you know, I've got to give to get strategy. I got to give something in order to be loved. Um, how does that continue to show up for you? Yeah, this, this was like a, it made so much sense to me, um, you know, quick. And I have no problem disclosing where, like where it came from. My, my parents split when I was three my dad was an alcoholic and he didn't give my mom any money. I saw him, you know, every other weekend and, um, very early on, he, he stopped giving me presents and everything was, you know, I'll give you a present if you do this or, you know, so it just became very ingrained into me early on that I had to do things and earn his love, which I never did, uh, which has all been part of the work. And that has showed up um, my entire life. And, you know, I, I found myself in my early 30s in a very traumatic situation and that, you know, the father of my two children, well, one at the time that was unborn, got diagnosed with a, a terminal illness. And, and for six years, I took on him and everyone who knew him, his family, his friends, all of my friends, I carried that burden of his illness for everybody. And, and, and I still to this day believe I kept him alive for a few years longer. I mean, that's the mm -hmm. two in me, right? Because I, I yeah. carried all of that. You know, I had two children in there too, started a business and I was working at a pharma company. So I just continued to try and prove and prove and prove. And it was so unconscious. I, I mean, I didn't really know I was doing it. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it broke me, right? Like it, it really did. It did really did break me. So learning about the Enneagram and, and learning how to unhook from all of this has just made my life so much lighter and easier in comparison, just carrying the weight of the world. I mean, I would say um, for me, I, I showed up similar to Shelly, where I felt like I became a therapist when I was a young kid, you know, sitting there for whether that was for my parents and struggles that they were having with themselves or, you know, whether that was um, with a sibling that, you know, uh, was acting out in different ways. Like I felt like my job was to hold everything together. And so it became a therapist for my family in a very unhealthy way, but where I'm sitting in that seat trying to be the one who, yeah, holds it all together and then learning very quickly, oh, but if I am the superior, moral, great, loving child who's super polite, does all the right things, doesn't do any of the wrong things, well, then that continues to get me affirmation. And so right. even though it's I working. wasn't processed, that's right, you know? And so, I mean, I remember very clearly just there was a time when I was little and I was at this event at church and I called someone sir and they just oh my goodness I can't believe such a young man would use the word sir and and then it became a regular part of my vocabulary it was just oh this is yeah. how I'm impressing old that's right this is how I impress older people then great I will use sir I will use ma'am I will use all these types of things because that immediately um yeah it gave me that sense of like oh yeah you're yeah, you're loved and you're appreciated and you're valued. And so, so now, yeah, in my work, yeah, that definitely, um, I came to my own breaking point on that, but there were so many things where I had to be seen as that guy all the time, where if it was, I'm going to be the first one to show up, I'm going to be the last one to leave because I want to be that guy. And even if that's not healthiest for me or for the organization, um, and for me not using maybe my best skill sets, you know, I would say super late and neglect my own needs 
because I just want to be seen as the one who would always show up. I don't ever want to be seen as the leader who would be selfish in my mind and not show up to every single thing and not do all of the things well. So, but yeah, but it would just cause me to just completely ignore myself mm-hmm. and think that that's what leadership looked like until I came to my own breaking point and was like, yeah, this is, I've traumatized myself to a point. So, so I definitely relate to that. Yeah. It catches up for sure. It catches up with us. Ashton, how about you? I mean, similar stories, similar experiences. My parents also split when I was five and I'm the youngest of, um, four. And I just always was that person, even though I was the youngest, I was always that person that was there for everyone else. I feel like my story though also has a lot to do with the fact that my sister's an eight. I talk about this all the time, but we really jumped into those roles of protector and the one who's being protected. And so a lot of my childhood Enneagram two story has to do with, um, you know, a lot of dependency and me being dependent on other people to fight my battles, me not being able to say no and doing things, um, in order to, be seen a certain way and to be loved a certain way instead of, you know, then my sister would come in and be like, no, she doesn't want to do that. Like she's just doing it to appease you. Um, So I feel like when I think about my childhood, a lot has to do with my eight sister. Um, But also I can remember being on the playground, like after, you know, my parents went through their divorce and helping all of my other friends with their parents going through divorces in elementary school and and literally having them line up at recess to talk to me Mm -hmm. and thinking like uh, back to that and how strange that was that I was like eight years old offering like what kind of advice, you know, but just always being... I always, I also feel like I have this sign. I go to the grocery store and next thing you know, I hear the cashier's life story and the time that I'm coming out. Right. So it it is that, um, that thing and almost like an expectation then that I put on myself to be this person. Yeah. I, I remember reading in, I guess it was high school, the how to win friends and influence people classic book. And I remember like everybody was kind of ooh and aahing, like, oh, you need to read this book. You're going to college. And I read it and I'm like, I've been doing this my whole life. Like, this is nothing. Like, and I remember like in little kid, like figuring out uh, in my family of origin, it was um, who I think are all head and gut types. I think I'm the only heart type in a family of gut and head types. It was more about like, we don't know what to do with your emotions. And so we're going to just ignore them or we're going to sometimes ridicule them. Sometimes it's like, oh, you're sensitive. Can you just go to your room and cry it out? Like, this is a lot. And so, yeah, early I figured out like lock that stuff up and find a way to help whoever's in front of you. And so, yeah, by the time I got to high school and college, I was like, isn't everybody doing this? Just strategically thinking about how do I get you to like me? Um, and I and this was just recently through our Enneagram stuff. Um, Caroline are in the same program. Um, I remember like this 
like breaking point where I was like, I'm really surprised when people like me, like genuinely like me and I haven't done anything. I'm like, I don't know. I don't think I trust it because I've not done anything, you know? And so I think really breaking that pattern um, and it's, it's still not, I mean, I have a lot of work to do on it, but that's that, that ingrained kind of adaptive strategy. If I don't have it, then it's like, oh God, you might just, you might reject me. You might not, but if I don't have my strategy, I don't know if I trust it. So that's kind of just where I am with all that. I want to talk about pride. So um, shift for a minute, because this is our passion, the passion of pride. Um, and again, Jonathan did a fantastic sermon on that not too long ago. How is this showing up for you all? Um, and it may be a little bit dependent on subtype. Um, so I'm a self-preservation too. And so a lot of my pride, um, it's, you know, Ashton, what you're talking about, the kind of the dependency or take care of me or this is too hard. I don't want to do it. Like, let me woo you and get you to like fix my computer for me. Um, I'm also I'm self-preservation. So aware of this pride. So talk about your, how it's showing up for you. What are you aware of with around pride? I'll just jump into it. Um, again, like <laughs> the Enneagram is so uncomfortable, right? When you say pride, I'm like, I hate oh, it. Gosh. <laughs> Um, but it is like this, this pride in, um, like I can fix you or I can fix your situation. Or if I just do this to help you, then your life will be better. (laughs) Right. Like, like I'm not, you know, your hero, but I can try to be, you know, and trying to be that person is exhausting. So I think that that is part of the issue and it comes to pride for a two, but, um, also it's just not attainable, right? Like we are often put ourselves on pedestals. It's interesting because, you know, we are the type that is most known to be, um, focused on others, but I think when our pride shows up, we turn very self-focused in look what I can do to help to help you and to fix you. Yeah. So so unconscious though, right? Like yeah. that I mean, pride is like when I learned about the Enneagram, I'm like, pride is like great. You should be proud of yourself, right? Yeah. That's those are the messages I was always told is like, you know, be proud of yourself, a strong young woman. Um so I'm a, I'm a sexual five, uh, sexual, uh, two. And what a big aha for me was, um, like as the layers of pride, I started to realize them. Um, I realized that pride shows up for me in, in being a super person, like a super woman, and that there's not a challenge that I can take on that I can't win or beat. And, and my life would show you that, right? Like growing up in the situation that I did and looking after my husband and, you know, raising my two boys and, and I got, you know, I got remarried and finally, you know, I've started to break that cycle thanks to um, his fiveness. I've learned a lot about boundaries from him, uh, but that was hard. It's just how insidious it is and how it shows up. Um, you know, even as simple, I, I share this story with people often, um, so like asking my husband if he wants a glass of water and if he says no, I'm like, what do you mean? 
like just take the glass of water like and and realize aren't you that thirsty really exactly like that's how silly it got so now I can catch myself I'm like okay you don't want the glass of water that's good um but yeah those those are some things that that I've learned about pride and I know it's still showing up in ways that I'm still unconscious to as well so just very present that it's it's always there Yeah, and I'm so glad you said that. It is unconscious, and I think pride is really tricky for us to like see, like because we don't typically think of it as a negative, but it is. You know, the fall of of the angel became you know the devil, so the pride of of Satan is really. I mean, it's kind of what we're talking about: this belief that we can play God, this belief that we. We know more than someone else who is the authority of their life or has their own access to the information that they need. Uh, so, Jonathan, share about how it showed up for you. Yeah, I would say it shows up very much in what, you know, both Ashton and Carolyn have shared that mm-hmm. resonates with me. And I think, if I dare say, can be way even more toxic in my world where I can find myself being seen as speaking on behalf of God. And the crazy, like, oh, we, we can fix anything that you've got going on. And not only do I have my wisdom, but somehow that my wisdom comes with some special um, spiritual authority attached to it and the grossness that can come from that. So, um, but I think for me to try to add a, just to, cause I relate both to both of those very well. Um, but another way that shows up for me is that it's just felt impossible my whole life to ask the question, what is it that I want? And that that has felt like such a terrible, selfish question for me to ask, because the only question I'm ever concerned about is what do you want? And what do you need? Never what myself is. And so, but it's the pride has come in and learning of, oh, that I'm exempting myself from having needs. And my friend, Steve, he compares it to like when you're standing in a long line getting ready to go to a concert. And if you were to see someone skip the line and go all the way to the front, like we would get offended by that and think, wow, why, who do you think you are that you can skip the line and that you can just make your way to the front? But that's that same pride that shows up in me when I just say, I don't ha- I pretend that I don't have needs or I don't pay attention to any wants or desires. And so that has ended up you know, hurting myself, hurting people around me, because it feels like I am somehow better than having needs. And it's just, it's a lying to myself. So um, I've had to figure out, you know, okay, how do I answer that question honestly, and start paying attention to what is it that I need, even though still today, you know, my family would all make fun of me, my wife would make fun of me. But I just I can't, it's so hard for me to answer that question. It feels wrong rather than, oh, that's really unhealthy not to be able to answer that question. Yeah. Or I so relate to what you say, Jonathan, because I remember like, you know, when trying to work through that part and, you know, well, what is it that I need? And they, it would always turn into like what somebody else needs. And again, this is, you know, this is the benefit of having like this amazing leader, like Beatrice Chestnut, be it too. Um, but one of the things she said, just drop the penny drop for me. And she said, I ask myself on a daily basis, what is it that I need right now? And that has helped me crack that nut a little bit. 
Um, so, you know, this morning when I got up, I'm like, what is it that I truly need right now? Do I need to follow my routine? I'm like, no, actually, I really need to just go for a walk. I didn't get out enough on the weekend. And that has helped me shift because it was, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what it was that I needed. I really spent so like so long of my life. Um, and I love that analogy of jumping the line. Cause I do get very upset when people jump the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Who do you think you are? Exactly. Um, okay. So let's talk a little bit about your growth. So the, one of the things I want to highlight with this podcast series is not just the typology of the Enneagram, which is great. And I think it's powerful for a lot of us to understand ourselves and our personality structure this way, but it's the growth that it can help us grow out of our personality box. And so, um, I'm really interested in like what you all are, you know, how are you using it? What does that look like? Uh, the word that, you know, humility is kind of the antidote for us of the pride. And that's something that I've really been um, meditating on and thinking a lot about lately is humility. Um, so like I, I think about every morning, I'm like, okay, what's the smallest thing I can do today or the most anonymous thing I can do today um, to, you know, keep moving things forward in my life. Um, and so it's really been challenging, like thinking about how do I integrate more and more humility um, to not have the answers, to ask for what I need, to be basic. <laughs> so I'm curious, like, what are you guys learning and growing? And if you could share a little bit about your growth path right now. Oh, I would say for me... Um, yeah, that, that humble, that humility question is major. And for me, it comes a lot through, I have to remind myself, I'm not the source of people's peace. I'm not the source of their happiness. I'm not the source of contentment. And so I have to keep disciplining myself to let people feel what they feel and not take responsibility for it. And so whether that's with my kids or with my wife or, you know, strangers or people in a, you know, a congregation where, if disappointing things happen, they get to feel disappointed and I'm not the source of making sure that they don't feel that way. Or if something sad happens or something frustrating happens, well, they get to feel frustrated because I'm not responsible for fixing that in them and making sure that they don't feel any sort of negative emotions. And that somehow through that, making myself the source of their peace and their contentment. So that's what I keep coming back to over and over again is going, oh, you're frustrated. You get to feel frustrated because what happened was frustrating. And that humility for me of trying to saying, how do I fix it? Trying to take it off of that and letting people feel what they feel. So, Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Um, I would say my work. Um, so I'm doing, I'm doing like a, a program through CP Enneagram on the personal track. Um, and I'm doing the professional track as well, but the personal track, the personal mastery program, uh, I have monthly challenges to work through to deconstruct uh, my personality. And the first one was intense, um, but it was getting in touch with suffering. And so it's really using that four arrow to really start to connect with emotions. And that was huge for me 
um, you know, I remember you were on AO saying to me, like, you have to say this out loud, Carolyn, you've suffered more than your children. And I was like, what? That like blew the lid off for me. So, you know, that's been a big part of my work and continues to um, through this process is is really understanding my emotions, understanding my emotional reactivity and integrating practices into my life that allow me to slow down and stop trying to prove my worth. So I'm spending a lot more time on my own. My kids are older, 16 and 18, so that's a little bit easier. Um, but knowing that that's okay, like I don't need to have my weekend blocked, you know, from 9 a.m. to like 10 p.m. at night. So lots more alone time, lots more processing and feeling emotions, naming them, moving through them, um, and lots of journaling. And then the one other thing that has been huge for me is I've gone off social media and difficult to do when you're, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and running your own business, um, I just, I had to though, and it's, it's helped my growth and it's helped my space be a little bit more what I need instead of having it defined by others. Um, so those have been some things that have helped, um, with, with my growth and continue to. I'm so inspired by you guys. (laughs) I feel like that's probably so freeing to be off social media. (laughs) I can't even imagine how that would work for you though, Ashton. <laughs> I don't think it would. Um, so for me, I feel I was really, while you all were talking, I'm like really thinking about this because I have a seven month old. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like it's just a different like layer of two-ness that has shown up as being a mom and trying to navigate what that looks like, not just as a person, but as a two. Um, so I feel like my growth has, has been, what do I need as a mom and what do I need as a working mom and somebody who's trying to figure out their identity now that they're a new mom. So I feel like besides that though, cause that's a whole other conversation, right? Um, I feel like I'm constantly doing the work on um, giving without receiving and really like having heart checks on why am I doing this? Why am I saying yes to this? Uh, do I really want to say no? If I really want to say no, then why don't I just say no? And working on, um, not feeling guilty for those feelings, right. For taking care of myself. The other day I, um, took a nap, which was very weird. And I felt like so guilty because I napped while my daughter napped and I woke up and I was like, I could have been doing, you know, all of these other things. But then I sat with that and I thought that is what I needed in that moment. And, this is part of that growth of, of me being able to recognize I need rest right now. And I'm going to serve myself in that way instead of constantly just being on for other people. That's awesome. Thank you. you. That's, that's so good. There's such good nuggets of wisdom in that. Um, Carolyn, you mentioned the arrow to four, So I think the arrow work, I just want to point that out for people who may not know like how to use the Enneagram to grow. So I think, you know, it's important to know about type two is our arrows are to four and to eight. Um, And I've actually been, um, I did last year, did a lot of work. Um, As you said, the word suffering, I felt something 
happened to me physiologically. It was like, oh, that word. Yeah, because I think that's, that's heavy work to do. But going into that and allowing it is such good arrow to four work. Those are our real intense feelers. And then this arrow to eight, um, I've become more and more conscious about, um, and Ashton, I think you mentioned it a few minutes ago, kind of this, the dependency or, you know, how do we step into our authority that uh, we don't have to have this kind of dependent push-pull relationship with people, but we can be kind of committed and stand in our own, on our own two feet and let come what will. You know, like let it come, whatever's going to happen. They may reject me, they may like me, but just to have our own sense of kind of internal compass um, has really been something that I've been, I've just been thinking a lot about. And so, uh, so I wanted to point out, do you all have anything else you want to mention about the arrow work or anything that you're seeing kind of play out for you? Yeah, I would say in a similar way, you know, my arrow to four, what was one of the biggest revelations to me was that taking time away as a two to be alone opened up creativity and vision and strategy in me that I didn't know existed, but it's because I wasn't trying to take care of everyone else in the room. Because as long as there's other people in the room, I'm trying to figure out what do you need? What do you want? Even in my own family. And so having to then link arms with my wife or with my staff and saying for me to, to tap into this, I is even as scary as it can feel sometimes as someone who likes to be around people, but to go, I have to get alone because that's the only time I'm not trying to figure out how to take care of everyone else. And so that's been a really helpful thing for both my creativity and um, vision and strategy, those types of things. And then the eight in a similar way of just what you just mentioned, Shelly, but um, really becoming way more comfortable in the last five years, that challenger of, especially on issues of injustice, where it's like, no, we're going to draw a line in the sand on these things and we're going to speak up against these things. And so whether it's been on uh, racial equality and um, gender equality and all these different things where it's like, no, we're going to, we're going to step into it and I'm going to challenge the system. I'm going to challenge the voices and you might not like it and people will leave and criticize and to do whatever, but these things are worth standing up and drawing lines for and being vocal about these systems or these oppressive voices. And yeah, versus that, part of me, you know, along, you know, years ago that would just be focused on how do I hold it all together? How do I not wound anyone or hurt anyone and make sure that they don't feel bad? But yeah, just stepping into more of that eightness and going, no, I, I really care about this and somebody has got to say something. So I will be one of those who stand up to say something. So. So I so identify with what you said there, Jonathan, in that that alone time allows the creativity just to show up in different ways. Uh, And when you think about it, you know, that's why going against uh, like going to the four first before you go to the eight is so powerful, because if you Mm -hmm. get that vision and that that time to really get that clarity, then when you do step into your power, it comes with this confidence and belief and and less concern um, about people not liking you. Um, 
I, uh, I, I don't think I'm fully there. Like I, I know there's still lots more work for me to do on the arrow. Um, you know, I do, I do kind of miss social media. I mean, I go on a little bit here and there. I've hired somebody to do my social for me. Um, so it is authentically my voice that, you know, they asked me to, you know, record things and, and, and put pieces out and then they'll, they'll look after kind of getting it out there. Um, so I do kind of look forward to the day when I can go back and not be impacted by all the voices around me. Um, and that's, that's, you know, still the work that's, that's being done, but yeah, to me, the four and the eight working on those two areas have really, it's really expedited my growth, um, more so than, than working on my wings. I agree. I think, and, and maybe it's because I felt so in tune with my wings, that that wasn't like an area I needed to focus on, but I agree with everything that that you all are saying about um, the four. And I think when I first discovered that twos were connected to the four, I was confused about what that could look like and really like what that meant. And it is incredible to kind of see it play out then. And you're like, it kind of solidifies that you are that type. I'm sure I'm not the only one who sits there sometimes and says, am I really a two? Um, but it took me a year and a half. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah. And, and exactly what you all are saying about the creativity. And I kind of can use that as a sign um, if I'm not you know, working towards the healthy side of the four, I won't be as in tune with myself and my own emotions. I won't be in tune with what I need. I won't be creative. Like I can feel that in my, on my platform, if I'm, you know, not in that space of health and I can kind of use that as an indicator that I need to be doing the work. Well, I want to just uh, wrap it up and ask you all if there's anything else that you want to share to the people that are listening who are twos or they have a two in their life. Uh, maybe there's something that just occurs to you that we've not talked about or you haven't mentioned um, that you want to share, and then we'll wrap it up from there. Yeah, I'm not sure if I have uh you've done a really great job in terms of kind of walking us through all of that. The only other note that I, I took from some of your questions earlier that maybe this is helpful for someone to hear, but I had a really difficult time ever putting some strong, healthy boundaries in my life with other people because I didn't want to be that person who cut someone out. I did that. The loving part of me just could not bear the thought of being that person who would say, I will put a boundary up where we're not going to have a relationship anymore. And that idea of loving your the golden rule of loving your neighbor as yourself. Like I didn't do the loving yourself part very well. I was good at the loving your neighbor part, but in order to love your neighbor part, I've had to figure out how to love myself. And part of that time means, you know what? I need to not be in a relationship with this person because it's toxic for me. And it's toxic for the people around me. And that, that was really difficult for me as a two. Um, but that loving myself, I think, has made me then in turn be able to love other people better. So if there's maybe someone listening that has some people in their life that you just feel like there's no way I could ever 
you know, put a boundary in my life, it, it might be really good and healthy too. So that's good. Thank you. I, I feel compel- compelled to share one thing to all the twos out there is that you are lovable. You are loved. Like, I think that was one of the biggest breaking points for me was like, like entertaining this idea. Oh, maybe I am just how I am. Don't have to do anything. So I think if, if someone can hear that, you don't have to do anything for it. Yes, your friends like you. <laughs> yes, your kids like you. Like, like there's there's something very true and pure about how much love the twos have to give because they are so much love. So I want to just say that. Ashton, Carolyn, anything else you all want to leave us with? I think to build on what you're saying, like... I never felt I wasn't loved and yet I still was pursuing being the best at everything that no one could ever say, Oh, Carolyn can't handle that. So if you're, if you are a two or if you think you might be a two and you're not really resonating with the, the love word or the touchy feelingness that you might be hearing us talk about, um, you could still be a two. Um, and I would say, um, yeah, slow, if you can give yourself, and I think this probably goes to any type, if you can give yourself the space and the permission to just slow down a little bit, even if it's just one minute a day, to find time to just create a little bit of space, start with one minute, and next thing you know, it'll be 10, and then it'll be 15. And it just allows you to process and be more aware and present to what's going on around you. I think that's probably my biggest takeaway is I was just too busy doing, doing, doing to prove myself unconsciously. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to, um, you know, say a little bit about what, what you were saying, Shelly, about how like you are loved and wanted and, you know, I, I think back to, you know, not receiving an invitation to things or not being included. And it doesn't matter that you're loved without those things, even if you aren't included, like you're included to somebody. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, and you're, you're welcome here you know, and, and you're wanted here. And I think that those are all things that twos, um, struggle to remember about themselves. Thank you all. This has been, um, just joyful. I I don't, you know, it's not one of those like having a party, get the music, get the booze, but this is like an important, conversation um, that I cannot imagine having a better one with uh, anybody but you three people. You all, I know you're so, y'all are also busy and you come from different places and um, have different ways that you're applying this work to not only your, your own lives, but to other people. So to make time for this conversation um, just means a whole lot to me. So I want to thank you all for your, your gift of time Um, and your gift of wisdom to share with our audience. So thank you. Thank you, Shelley. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Big Self Podcast. We're so grateful for your presence with us. And we hope that each of these episodes helps with what you're needing most right now. 
Right now, I have a few remaining spots open for my one-on-one leadership coaching. You can find out more at bigselfschool.com slash coaching. Also, if you want to go to our bigselfschool.com page, you can get our free ebook, How to Build Self-Knowledge, Discovering Who You Are. And that's a great beginning point for launching in a whole new direction of personal growth. And of course, don't forget about the Enneagram as a great way to dive deeper into your self-development. Go to bigselfschool.com slash Enneagram and you can download our free guide there, How to Unlock Your Potential with the Enneagram. We also offer team trainings for your organization and individual typing packages as a way to discover your type and begin using the Enneagram for personal growth. And also, if you're in Chattanooga, you can sign up for my Enneagram 101 class on August 26th at The Chattery. Go to thechattery.org and you can register there. Lots going on. Thank you for tuning in this week.